Be careful if you are, if you think you're standing, or you might fall down. Mm, that one stuck with me then. Um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 13 again this evening, this morning. I was just thinking, um, it's one of the benefits of co-pastoring is when one of us forgets something in the service, usually the other one remembers. That's happened several times for me. I've forgotten, I've forgotten about something, and Mary has just been able to remind me, and benefit it also happens just throughout the week <laughs> we get to keep on up on each other um this this morning we're in luke chapter 13 again although we're um stepping back some verses last week we were towards the end of the chapter this morning we're going to be in the first few verses verses one through nine of chapter 13 We'll have those uh, words up on the board as well. If you'll stand, if you're willing and able for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 13. At that very time, there were some, some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will perish as they did. Or how about those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for the fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it continue depleting the soil? He replied, sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, then you can cut it down. This is the written word of God for the people of God. Say, thanks be to God. And then you may be seated. I think it can be easy when we read this text from Luke chapter 13 to kind of gloss over the tragedies that are mentioned right there at the beginning. Two, like, really bad tragedies are mentioned right there in the first few verses of this story. It can be easy for us to just sort of gloss over it and get to the teaching that Jesus gives afterwards. These Galileans come to Jesus with this tragic story of human cruelty where Pilate, the Roman governor of this part of the providence, kills some Jewish worshipers as they make sacrifices in the temple. A tragedy, for sure. Jesus then also reminds them of another story where in Jerusalem a tower falls, collapses, and kills 18 people. A tragedy. Two tragic events where people die really senselessly. One from this cruelty of someone in power, and one from a freak accident of a tower falling on them. Human lives which came to a sudden and unsuspecting end. I think we get numb to hearing stories like this, even in our present day. We hear stories of wars and tragic events. We hear of school shootings. It seems like regular news sometimes. We hear of someone spending their life on death row for a crime they ended up not committing. And, you know, it's not someone that we know. So our concern comes and goes like the wind. We hear of an earthquake in Haiti or a tsunami in Thailand, and we perhaps pray for the victims. We feel sad for them, but our life moves on like the, like the uh, news report does. 
I mean, what are we to do after all on some of these? You know, we can pray. Some of us can even send money if we have the resources to do that to help the victims. Some of us may go so far as to go on a work and witness trip and go and help with disaster recovery. All of these can be good things for us to do. But really, the impact on our own lives, it comes and goes with the news headlines. We hear in Luke's gospel this morning of two tragedies and the lives lost. And it's easy to kind of gloss over those stories and get to that teaching, that parable afterwards that Jesus gives. But I think in order to understand where Jesus is coming from, why he even tells the parable, we need to understand what's going on with these tragedies. We need to understand the background, the context, the suffering, the human life lost in it. We hear in Luke's gospel these two tragedies, and so we need to understand them in order to understand the parable that he gives just after. Jesus is in Galilee during this text. He's in the region of Galilee. And so the people that bring this rumor to Jesus are most likely Galileans themselves. They are Galilean. The people that were killed by Pilate were Galileans. Jesus also is a Galilean, you might know. Jesus is a Galilean. And so this holy man, Jesus, has been spending most of his ministry and life in Galilee, doing ministry in Galilee, meeting Galileans, knowing Galileans. And here he hears this story, this horrific death, this tragedy of Pilate killing these Galileans as they are in a sacred place of worship, sacrificing to their God. Their own countrymen, their own people killed. I imagine that those who brought this news to Jesus were probably expecting Jesus to get a little bit more angry than he does. He's probably expecting him to get furious at the news of this tragic event. Perhaps they were hoping that they could make Jesus really mad. You must remember that Jesus has been preaching and teaching for some time. Many were saying that he was the Messiah. That was another rumor going around that Jesus was the Messiah, the coming king, the ruler who would rescue his people from the empire. The only problem is, is that Jesus ain't been acting like that. <laughs> he doesn't really seem to be showing in, any interest in building any sort of resistance army to run Rome out. He isn't giving any rousing spe- speeches to Israel for them to take their country back from the Romans. He wasn't organizing assassination hits or secret meetings. He wasn't acting like a coming king at all. No, Jesus is teaching in chapter 9 that true greatness actually comes in the humility of Christ-like or childlikeness. In chapter 10, he's telling a parable of a good Samaritan and explains that even enemies, religious enemies, heretics have the ability to enter God's kingdom. Compassion is the way, he says. In chapter 12, Jesus explains that the way that he brings will cause division, not unity among his people. Division among the people who Jesus, the Messiah, was supposed to unite against their common enemy. And so they come and tell Jesus of this tragedy of Rome. And maybe they're hoping we can finally get Jesus going. Maybe when Jesus hears about this evil, he will finally start acting like a real king. Maybe we can get some nationalistic anger roused in him, they think. They have an agenda. Get the mild and meek-mannered Jesus mad. It's a normal tendency in humans to want to find something to fuel our righteous anger. We all know that there is sin and brokenness in our world. We know that. There's injustice in our world. We know that. No matter where we are standing, what our situation is, where we are at in human history, we find ourselves 
looking for something to be angry about. We want to be angry at the injustice in the world. This is good. And so no matter where we are, as a part of that, we find ourselves looking for self-righteousness. I'm in the right. I'm the one that's in the right. You are in the wrong. That's what we want. We want to feel persecuted. Because if we can convince ourselves that we're the ones that are being persecuted, then we can justify our anger. And if we can justify our anger, we can justify our actions that come out of our anger. We can justify how we act in the world, what we say and what we do. If we convince ourselves that we're the ones being persecuted, we can, we can convince ourselves that the way that we act in the world is justified. We want to justify what we say to someone who opposes us, to someone who disagrees with us. We want to justify the way that we act. We want to justify cursing our enemies. That's really at the root of the Galilean spreading of this story. They're angry about some of their own people dying in this ridiculous, tragic way. They're angry, and they want everyone else to be angry with them. If they could all be angry together, perhaps a new power will rise, and they'll get to wield that power. If they're all angry together, it's easier to justify their actions. Jesus' temptation surely doesn't end in the wilderness. You'll remember the wilderness story. Jesus is tempted to, to grab hold of all, of all of the kingdoms of the world just by worshiping the devil, by worshiping the way of the devil, by going in the direction of the devil. I imagine that Jesus was tempted even in our story to join in the Galilean self-righteous anger. He was a Galilean, after all, a Jewish man who was brought up on the story of Exodus, where the people escaped the oppressive empire of Egypt, living in the first century oppressive empire of Rome. But that isn't the way. Jesus knew that while he was in the wilderness. He knew that that was not the way. And so he refuses to adopt the violence of the world. He refuses to adopt that way. Upon hearing of this tragedy, Jesus, instead of being beginning a righteous tirade against Pilate and the Romans, he brings up another tragedy. (laughs) Another one. This one's a natural accident, though. In both cases, Jesus redirects the people. Upon first reading, Jesus' points seems to be kind of unrelated to what the Galileans are bringing up. It kind of seems unrelated to their hope. He says, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Or what about those 18 that were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than anyone else living in Jerusalem? Here are two tragedies, Jesus says. People suffered and died suddenly. Do you think that that was because of sin in their life? You see, this was a common understanding in Jesus' time. Many believed that suffering that one experienced was directly correlated to sin in their lives. Some parts of the Old Testament seem to teach this, and so it was a common understanding, it was a misunderstanding, that if something bad happened in your life, then you obviously sin to deserve that. Maybe you know the story of Job in the Old Testament. That's really what that whole story is about. We're told that Job is a righteous man, a good man, living according to the law. But despite his righteousness in the face of God, tragedy befalls Job. Terrible things happen to him. He loses his children, his livestock, and even his health. The story wants you to know that if there's anything in your life that you can lose, Job lost it. In this tragic story, Job has a visit from some of his friends. His friends come to him, and in the midst of all his suffering, his friends decide to offer him some advice. 
they all say kind of basically the same thing in a bunch of different ways, but this is basically the gist of what their message to Job was. Think. What innocent person, what righteous person has ever experienced that much suffering? No one. No one who's righteous and good experiences the type of suffering that you've experienced. Therefore, you must not be righteous. You must be a a sinner, the worst of all sinners for this to have happened. As I've observed, one of them says, those who plow sin and sow trouble, those are the ones who harvest it. At one point, one of Job's friends turns up the self-righteousness and he says, look at us, all your friends standing right here in front of you. Nothing bad has happened to us. That means we're righteous. You should listen to us. (laughs) Through many chapters of Job, Job's friends offer him no comfort in his suffering. They don't listen to him. The only argument that they have to offer is that bad things only happen to bad people. Bad things only happen to sinners. This way of thinking was ingrained in them, and it was ingrained in even Jesus' disciples. They believed this. We hear in John's Gospel in chapter 9, a blind man comes up to Jesus, and the first thing that the disciples do, they're not concerned about this suffering that this blind man has. Their only thing that they're concerned with is they ask Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or this man's parents that he was born blind? Who's responsible for his suffering? And the second lesson that we we read, that Misty read for for us in, in the letter of Paul, it sounds kind of as if Paul may be even a little bit persuaded by this argument. I think it's, again, a misunderstanding of what Paul's saying. I can't help but think that the way that they are thinking that Job's friends are thinking, that the disciples think, that the Israelites think. It's actually kind of ingrained in us a little bit too, you know. We often assume that someone who's poor deserves it. People in prison are sinners. People who are addicted to drugs or alcohol, they deserve the fate that they get. Jesus clearly says no. (laughs) That's not the point. Right in our text, he says, do you think those who suffer like this are worse sinners? No, all of us are sinners. We need not make those types of judgments. That's not our role. That's not our job. Now to Paul's point, Paul is saying that when we depart from God's way, when God has given us a way to live, and when we depart from that way, we, we experience suffering. When we do not follow in the way of God, we will likely experience suffering. That is likely to happen. And that is Paul's point in his text. But Paul is not saying that all suffering that we experience in our lives are directly connected to personal sin in our lives. And Jesus's point is just that most tragedies are not connected to the victim's sins. He's clear that it's because of the brokenness in our world. It's because of the sinful way of our world that these tragedies happen. The very way that Pilate lives, the very way that Rome lives, the way of brutality and violence that is, the, that is what results in so much suffering in our world. Can personal sin and bad decisions lead to suffering in our lives? Of course, yes. Can sinful living result in being in prison? Yes. Can bad decisions lead to addiction? Yes. Can poor money management lead to poverty? Yes, sometimes it does. The way of Jesus, as we are given it in Scripture, is to say, so What? So what if this person's suffering is a result of their sin? So what if someone is in poverty or in addiction because of their own sin? So what? God didn't give us the job to make that judgment. God and Jesus gave us the job of ministering to them regardless. 
Jesus says, do not judge and you will not be judged. And in that same chapter, he says that when judgment day does come, he will look at those on the right and they will, he will say, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom that has been set apart for you. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was in prison and you visited me. He doesn't say, come you that are blessed for you fed me when I earned it. You gave me something to drink when my lifestyle was righteous by your standards. You gave me clothes when I proved that I really needed them. You visited me in prison when I was only unjustly convicted. No, there's no role of judgment in it. Let's visit the sick. Give to the needy. There's no role of judgment. There's no role of determining worthiness or unworthiness of generosity, hospitality, or compassion. That's not our job. It is so easy for us to stand in front of an unfruitful tree and point at that tree and say, it's your fault. You're unfruitful and you're useless. It's so easy for us to look at the pilots of our world and feel that we are good enough and righteous enough to point our finger at them and say, you just aren't bearing fruit. It's so easy for us to look at those who are suffering in poverty and addiction and imprisonment and point our finger at them and say what Job's friends say, you reap what you sow. But for Jesus, this just is not the way. The Galileans come to Jesus wanting to rouse anger in him. They want him to get up and start pointing and shouting and even cutting down the fruit tree with them. Jesus redirects, though. He completely redirects it, though. He points out that often our theology has made us say that those who suffer tragedies just are getting what they deserve. He points that out, that it's a misunderstanding of the world. Jesus is saying it's always easy to find someone to point our finger at. It's always easy for, some, for us to find someone to yell at, for us to curse even. It's always easy to find someone that we deem unfruitful and cut them down. Whether it's Pilate or one of those, one of those that are at the point of Pilate's spear, the one suffering at the expense of Pilate. There's always someone that we could point to as deserving it. Jesus says no. That's not it, guys. He says to those who stand on their own two legs, their own self-righteous anger, your posture is all wrong, my friends. If you don't repent, if you don't take a different posture, then you're, you're the one who's going to experience the same fate, a sudden death, a sudden and unsuspecting death. If you continue in this posture of pointing and accusing and cursing, it will take you on a road of violence. It will shape you into living into the way of the world, of taking on that direction. Jesus then goes on to tell tell them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it continue to waste the soil? The gardener replies, Oh, sir, let it alone for one more year. Let me... Do some work on it. Let me get down here and and dig around the roots and put some manure and some nutrients in it. You know, if it bears fruit next year, then good. If not, then you can worry about cutting it down. When we read parables like this, we can't help but find ourselves wanting to know who each character is, who they represent. I've heard this parable often interpreted this way. God's the landowner. Jesus is the gardener and we're the tree. That's one way to see it, I think. But I think if we read it in the context of the story that we've read this morning, there's a little bit of a different meaning behind it. 
I think Jesus is telling us that we have an option on who we're going to be. We have a choice. Who do we want to be in this parable? Are we going to be like the landowner, standing there pointing at the tree, saying it's your fault, you're not, you're not fruitful, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing? Are we going to be like the gardener? I think Jesus is telling us we have that option. Who are we going to be like, the landowner or the gardener? I think that the Galileans in our story are being the landowner. They, they stand in front of Jesus and they point at Pilate, the embodiment of evil in their world, and they say, it's just not fruitful. Let's cut them down. Violent was violent. Pilate was violent to our people. Let's return violence onto him. We do this ourselves. We look around in the world. We make our judgments on who is responsible for evil in the world. We point our finger. We say, you, you're the problem. We look to those who are poor, addicted, in prison. And we say, it's your own fault. You sinned. Now you're getting what you deserve. We posture ourselves in our own self-righteousness. We point away from ourselves and we say, you, you did this. In the age of Facebook, this is particularly easy and satisfying for us to do. We log in and are on to our high horse. We find posts or videos. We share them. Someone comments in disagreement, the floodgates open. Or we see someone else sharing something we disagree with and we get after them. Pointing our finger. This is the exact problem. You're the problem. You did this. We call others names. We even curse people. Something the church is doing now, some of us. Cursing people. Cursing leaders we disagree with, we don't like. We draw our lines, we build our walls, we stand on top of those walls, and we hurl spears of hatred. Jesus says, you continue in that way if you want. You can continue doing that if you want. But you're going to be like the landowner standing there pointing, you did this, you are fruitless, and I'm sick of it. But Jesus wants us to think about it. Is that fruitful? <laughs> We're pointing at that tree, that fruitless tree, and saying, you're fruitless, you're useless. Is that fruitful, though? Are we being fruitful by doing that? I mean, if a landowner just stands there pointing at the fig tree, accusing it, condemning it, is that actually doing anything to help the fruit tree produce? The landowner isn't doing anything to create an environment, a culture, we might say, where a tree can produce fruit. And so Jesus says, if you continue in that way, do not change your posture then you're the ones responsible for fruitlessness. Instead, try something different. Be like the gardener. He stands on behalf of the fruit tree. He says, give me some time with it. The gardener then bends down. He gets down to earth. He begins working gently around the roots. He knows that if a fig tree isn't producing, it's likely because the culture and the dirt around the the roots aren't very nutrient-dense. The landowner says that this tree is wasting the nutrients of the soil, while the gardener recognizes that there apparently aren't any nutrients there. That's the problem. The gardener gets down to earth. He works around the roots gently. He begins to replace the soil that is offering nothing to the tree with manure, which has lots to offer the tree. When we're determining who the gardener represents, we should certainly assume that it's Christ. But the invitation in this parable is for us, as the people who say that we are the body of Christ in the world, it's for us to be the gardener. It's for us to take the posture of the gardener 
Instead of posturing like the landowner, pointing self-righteously at the fruitless tree, we take the posture of the gardener. We get down on our hands and knees, down to earth. Instead of using our hands for pointing and judging and condemning, we use our hands to spread manure. What if we, as the Christ body in the world, changed our posture as those pointing and blaming victims or perpetrators, and instead got down to earth, repented for our own shortcomings, And did our best to cultivate the environment, a culture around the roots that will lead to fruitfulness. Jesus says that there still may come a time when that tree is proven to be fruitless and it needs to be cut down. Not our job. Not our responsibility. Praise God that no human is given that responsibility. Our job is simply to take the posture of the gardener. A posture that will certainly require humility. You ever touched manure before? It requires some humility on your part. To dig in manure requires some humility. It requires a willingness to get manure all over our hands and all over our clothes and all over us. You know, we began the season of Lent on Ash Wednesday. I had a sackcloth right here and we had ashes that we were rubbing on our forehead. And it was this time for us to, to, to kind of do what they did in the Old Testament and to sit in sackcloth and ashes whenever they were mourning or lamenting their own sin or the sin of the world. And that's how we began the season that we're in right now, Lent, of sitting in ashes. Aren't you glad I didn't bring dung in here to mark on your foreheads? We began this season of Lent being encouraged to sit in sackcloth, sit in ashes, sit not only in repentance of our own sin, but in lament for the sake of the world. I don't want to be misunderstood here this morning. I'm not saying that we ignore the atrocities of the world, that we ignore the injustice of the world, that we ignore those like Pilate who who refuse to, to live in a different way, who live in a way that results in death. I mean, after all, it's actually just after our text. You'll remember our text from last week. It was also in chapter 13. It's just after this passage that Jesus laments. He laments for the injustice in Jerusalem. He says these words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired for you to to gather you as children, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. You're not willing. See, your house, your house where God is supposed to abide, it's empty. That's a lament. Jesus is lamenting for the sin of Jerusalem. He's taking that posture of lament. It's not a posture of standing self-righteously pointing. It's a posture of lament and brokenness and sadness. It's a posture that requires kneeling down and weeping for the state of the world. Our posture is to be a posture of kneeling down, lament, Not standing on our own two feet, self-righteously pointing. For it's only when we take the kneeling posture that we're able to tend roots. It's only when we take the kneeling posture that we're able to spread manure around the culture and create a culture where fruitfulness can happen. Um, We've been practicing during the season of of Lent um, different practices as a response time. It seems appropriate this morning that that another practice that the church often does just before receiving communion, which, again, I mentioned last week, we're kind of leading to communion in a few weeks. 
And so another practice that's often practiced before is a, is a, is a communal or a congregational lamentation, a congregational confession of sin. And so we're going to say a prayer together. It's going to be here on the screen. It's a prayer of confession of our own sin and recognizing that we still have shortcomings, that there's still work to be done in our own lives, at our own roots, but also that as a, as a sign of, of lamenting for the state of the world, taking a posture of lamenting and, and brokenness and sadness for the state of the world, not pointing and, and accusing in a self-righteous way. And so we're going to pray this prayer together. I'm going to invite you. Um, it's always helpful if we stand. Um, so if you would, just I want to invite you, if you're willing and able, to stand. We're going to read this together. The words are going to be here on the screen. Let's read this together. Oh, merciful Father, do not consider what we have done against you, but what our blessed Savior has done for us. Do not consider what we have made of ourselves but what he is making of us for you, our God. Oh, that Christ may be wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption to every one of our souls. May his precious blood cleanse us from all our sins and your Holy Spirit renew and sanctify our souls. May he crucify our flesh with its passion and lust and cleanse all our brothers and sisters in Christ across the earth. O God, we lament and mourn the state of the world, that sin is still at work in the hearts of people, even us, that powers and principalities are under the tempter's influence, that the the poor are still crushed and the needy are still ignored, that there is still division in many forms. We implore you, O Lord, Strengthen your church by your spirit, that we may truly be the body of Christ in the world. Offering faith where there is doubt, hope where there is despair, and love where there is hate. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm going to invite the praise team to come, and we're going to sing one song, and and it's going to continue this theme of, of posturing ourselves as, as knowing that, that we on our own cannot be righteous enough. But we need God. And so we're going to sing this song, Lord, I need you. Let us maintain that posture of repentance, that posture of kneeling as this as we sing this song together.
pray. Lord, we need you. We need you. And, and that posture that we have taken in these last few moments of this service, Lord, this posture of surrendering our own self-righteousness to you, of recognizing that that posture is not fruitful. But your invitation to a posture of prayer, of kneeling and mourning, Lord, for the state of the world and for repenting of our own sin and our own shortcomings, we know that you who are faithful will forgive us. You who are faithful will empower us and strengthen us to be your body in the world. Help us, O oh God, as we continue to, to need you, not only here in this place together, but as we go out into the world, Lord, we need you to strengthen us. Help us, O oh God, go with us into this time. Go with us into this week. Help us, O oh God, to be your people. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Just as a reminder, our uh, community worship services tonight at Fellowship Church at 6 o'clock. We'd love to see you there. Um, next week is the annual meeting, just as a reminder. And if you haven't gotten our, your nominee letters back, if you'll get those back to me today, appreciate it. All right, go in peace to love and serve right next week.